for listening to the Late Registration Podcast, a podcast that inspires teachers, administrators, and parents to grow in their knowledge, skills, and abilities while working towards creating more accessible and equitable educational spaces. Your hosts, Ashley and Michelle, are educators, moms, and SEL fanatics, and we are obsessed with empowering the next generation of leaders. Join us as we change the narrative on misbehavior and discuss all things education, including building connections, restorative practices, behavior, and social-emotional learning. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Late Registration Podcast. I'm Ashley. And I'm Michelle. And we're here today with Catherine Grill of Neil, and she's here to talk to us a little bit about her company and its mission. And so we're just going to go ahead and start out with you, Catherine. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how Neil began? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here today. Uh, my name is Catherine Grill. I am the CEO and founder of Neoth, which is a mobile application that provides stress and mental health support to students. Um, gosh, my background, I always tell people this is years and years or a lifetime in the making in that uh, mental health was something I just kind of grew up with. I had family members and friends with serious mental illness. I really saw, you know, this is going back years now, uh, what it was like when there was stigma, when there were a lot of barriers to care, cultural barriers, financial barriers to care, and people just were not getting the help that they needed. Uh, it can be devastating on that person, on the family unit in general. Um, so, you know, I saw this from a young age. I became interested in mental health care. I ended up going to school originally to study therapy. Um, and worked in psychiatric care. I really had a focus on what's called the expressive arts. So like art therapy, dance therapy, movement therapy, things like that. Um, that can work well with people who might have a hard time with traditional talk therapy for various reasons, you know, children included. So did the, did the patient care thing for a bit. I love working directly with people. It's, it's so much fun. But it was frustrating for me because it's still very much so um, in the U.S. here based on can you afford it or not? And if you can afford good treatment, you're going to get it. And if not, you don't get access to that care that I believe is, you know, just a basic human right. So that was a frustration for me. I ended up uh, leaving the patient care kind of arena and then going back to school. Ultimately, I did my doctorate in behavioral neuroscience and um, really wanted to learn about what's called neurodiversity or, you know, differences within the individual and how that might shape our treatment preferences, how we can personalize behavioral interventions make them uh, more accurate and just better for, for every person. I spent some time doing what's called NIH Research National Institutes of Health, so really learning how to build and validate different health programs, disseminate them in the public. I also spent some time in the schools uh, teaching with a professor for about six, seven years and did okay. some, um, some work with community nonprofits and more on the public health side. Uh, again, really loved that work, but just felt like the scale bit is missing. You know, we're doing all this fantastic work to build programs that help people. And then maybe we reach a thousand people and then we do another research study. Why can't we take this good program and scale it to 1,000, 10,000, 1 million people and really get that affordable, you know, care out there? So long story short, about five years ago, moved to Silicon Valley. That's where I am now here in California. And ended up founding Neos, which is a technology company. Love that. I love the the kind of the, the why behind it and that public health portion too, because that's kind of how we have that systemic growth. So you're not just reaching that small population, but really, you know, getting it to the masses. 
Um, and I think that's one thing that really speaks to Michelle and myself as, as educators is what's going on in the schools, right, Michelle? Like we've, oh. we're seeing a lot right now. Yeah, I think that might even be an understatement. I th- I'm not sure what the um, right word is for what we're seeing, um, but it's unprecedented numbers. I know that. Um, I've been in education for 20-something years. Ashley's been in for as long, and I've never seen as many students with as many significant and serious mental health challenges Um can you tell us about how NEOTH is pioneering um, precision neuroscience to support students and teachers with your app? Sure, yeah. Um, I'll chat a little bit, I guess, about, about neuroscience, and then you know, we'll, we can go from there. But you know, my background, right, I was a neuroscientist. I'm trained there and, again, really interested in this concept called neurodiversity. So looking at how could we shape treatment interventions based on the individual to have the best outcome. Uh, and you can think about it this way. Psychology is really one of the only fields in medicine where we are not using biological biomarkers to make treatment decisions. We have something called the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the Behavioral Health Checklist. Um, if you know a clinician deems that you meet five out of these seven criteria, then you might have you know a health condition, for example. Uh, there's a lot just of blew up with that. Like my head so... just popped off. Because that is so right. Because that is why we have so many people with multiple diagnoses. They go to one doctor who, you know, finds these things, and then another doctor can find these things. I never thought about it in that way using those biomarkers. Okay, that's fascinating. Okay, sorry. I just note to self. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 interesting. It feels like the brain is the last frontier, and maybe that's why you know I went into neuroscience because it's so exciting. There's so much we have left to learn, but um, there's there's more and more research coming out. Really, in the '90s, as well, neuroimaging, taking pictures of the brain, being able to see what's going on in the brain at the functional and structural level, where that became big. So, in the past 30 years, we've built up this kind of wealth of brain imaging research and these databases. And we're now starting to be able to understand when somebody is stressed, when somebody has anxiety, when they have major depression, what is going on in the brain at that biological level. What's very important to understand is it's not that everybody with depression has the same issue with their brain and everybody with anxiety has the same issue. There are actually what we're finding subtypes. So you would assume, okay, everybody with depression might have the same issue. They're going to get the same treatment. Well, you can see, with, for example, antidepressants, that it doesn't work. Some people respond and some people don't. And the reason why goes back to these brain biomarkers, differences in the brain, people might have different subtypes. Stanford is an institution um, out here in California that's doing a lot of research on this. They call it precision mental health care. But essentially, if you could identify the area of the brain that's, uh, that's struggling, you could say, you know, maybe the antidepressant is the right treatment. Maybe cognitive behavioral therapy or mindfulness is the right treatment. So you can really start to connect people right away to the treatment that is going to work for them instead of this wait and see approach. I think on average right now, it's about 11 years for somebody with the onset of depression to getting the right treatment. That's a very, very long time. And as you can imagine, impacts the quality of life. Uh, So that's a little bit about the background of what just precision neuroscience is. It's using those biomarkers to more quickly connect people to the right treatment. At NEOC, we really look at what's called stress subtypes. So rather than looking at clinical disorder, looking at stress, which is something we all have, it's something that's very elevated, especially in our younger generations. 
Um, and just looking at it through the lens of we all respond to stress differently. Some of you out there might be uh, what we call ruminators are really worrying, like lying in bed at night. I see nodding, thinking about things over and over again. When you hear one of these things, people usually know that's me. Um, some people might be more, you know, avoiding uh, situations, wanting to play video games, watch TV, not talk about their emotions. Uh, that's also really common. There's also a completely different profile for somebody who's gone through traumatic events. And we could talk about that for days, but it totally rewires the brain. Um, and then they're just emotions and their behavior. So understanding and these different stress subtypes is really key. And it's something that we do on Neo. Um, when somebody signs up, we do what's called a personalization survey, but we're able to understand through their behavior, which kind of uh, biomarkers might be associated in their brain when they're feeling stress and then able to connect them to the right technique. So it's not about everybody getting, you know, the same SEL skills or the same relaxation skills, but it's really about tailoring it to the individual, again, based on those brain biomarkers. Love that. Love that. I love that term precision, precision neuroscience, that, that preciseness too. And like you said, it's customizable. It's not just, it's for the masses, but not just mass produced. I love that. Love that. Um, yeah, Michelle, did you have any, I know you had a lot to say about some of the things that blew yeah. your mind too. Well, I, you know, I, I come from an education lens and I don't know if you can see behind me, but I have brains on my wall. Like I do um, groups for kids with neurodiversity and I just think that the more they know about how their brain works, um, the more empowered they can be. Um for, you know, all of the things that kids and teens go through to help cope and manage and, you know, get through those um, types of things. The thing that I was so blown away about is I have personal experience with a um, teen in the mental health care system. Um, our oldest, right when lockdown began, um, really spiraled. Um, and it was kind of, I felt like it was out of the blue, but now that I look back, there were different signs. We just, they were so minute or nuanced that we didn't see them. And just the, and it is incredibly frustrating as a parent. And even like, I know some of the lingo, I have a background in social work. I have friends like Dr. Campbell and, you know, other people within my professional sphere that can kind of help guide me. And it was so incredibly frustrating to even find consensus on an organization or, you know, a particular program for our son. And I think that 11-year sta uh, statistic that it takes people that long to find the right care, quote-unquote, for depression, I, my mind is blown because I'm living that. And I'm still, thankfully now, I feel like hopefully we're kind of over the hump and we're on the the downhill slide, but you know, I still hold my breath because I never know if what has been working is still going to work for him. And he's gonna be graduating and he's gonna have to manage this on his own as an adult. And it's it's difficult. And so I love that he can, and he actually has a subscription on your app, by the way. <laughs> and he totally digs it. And I love that it can give him different options as he answers questions. And then is it every 30 days that it goes back and he takes another survey? I know there's like a. Oh, yeah. You know the app. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we, um, 
So one of the I think, really important things to know about Neoc is that all of this has been built in partnership with young people. Oftentimes, as doctors, I think we were taught to, uh, you know, you know best. You're going to build a program and don't ask the patient. And that's really the wrong approach. And I was very privileged to be able to have a mentor uh, when I was working in research who did what was called community, communi- oh my gosh, okay, Community-based participatory research. There you go. It's a mouthful. Oh, uh, but basically, it means taking whoever the patient population is and bringing them into the designer when you're designing this intervention because there are so many kind of personal and cultural factors that are important that are going are gonna to affect whether or not they will engage in this intervention. So, yes, long story short, we've had hundreds of kids come through and work with us. I think we currently have about 300 right now who are working with the company. I get to talk to them every day. It's fantastic. Um, and one of the things they said when they were looking at other digital products out there was that these huge libraries of like hundreds of pieces of content was overwhelming. Like, where do I start and how do I know this works for me? And all of us, I think our very um, time is a precious resource for us. So if you're trying one, two, maybe three exercises and you're like, this isn't working, they're just kind of probably gonna get rid of the app and try something else. And that's what's happening in these apps with these large libraries. So what we learned from the kids was to start them off with, we have a starter pack, they can test out different things, whether it's you know CBT, um, art therapy, breathing, journaling, they can start to get a sense of what are the different techniques on them. And every month, month we actually match them with five practices from our library that are personalized for them. So you're absolutely right, Michelle, that we will uh, check in with them throughout the month. And then each month it's like they're unlocking new content that is really personalized for them as their health is changing over time. And we found that that's a really effective way to keep them engaged, and then also to just connect them with resources that are tailored for them that's not happening in an overwhelming way, but it's very step-by-step. Yeah, that's amazing. And I also noticed, too, that a lot of the resources are delivered by young people as well. Is that, I mean, there's a few things that are definitely, um, you know, professional-level doctors and MDs, but a lot of the things that I saw when I was looking through it with my son was that it was coming from kids his age or close to his age, which made it even more relatable. Totally. When we think about, um, for anyone out there who's done design sessions, I have a feeling it might be some of the people listening to this. You know, we think about kind of coming up with, um, I guess, different different true norms, you could say, or different things that we just want to keep in mind, design principles. And whenever we work with the kids, the two things that keep coming up related to mental health and what they want to see would be trust and community. Um, so trust, thinking about that this is, you know, it's a digital platform. I think there are a lot of problems out there with, with tech and not having that trust, but wanting to make sure that they're coming to a safe space, that the information that they're getting is accurate. It is health information after all. And that's why, Michelle, as you said, we have a lot of information from doctors, from therapists. It's all moderated, so not everything gets posted. We actually will make that content. Our team of doctors will vet it and then put it up um, on the, to the application. So they know if they're looking at health information, they can trust it, that it's coming from, you know, real accredited health professionals. But the community is so important, too, because oftentimes when we're struggling with mental health, we feel very alone. It feels isolating, like nobody else is going through this. Mm -hmm. And that is when you can start to spiral into that depression and potentially suicidality. So it can be very dangerous, that isolation. But what was so amazing during the pandemic at this time when just globally we were all really isolated, we had young people raising their hands, stepping up and saying, you know what, 
I want to be not just using this application, but I want to be involved in the creation of this. I don't want to just help myself. I want to help other people. I want to help my peers. So we actually had 700 students email me. I was getting emails all the time. Um, Will you hire me? (laughs) Can I work for you? And I was just starting this company. I said, oh my gosh, I can't hire 700 uh, people right now, but I would love to have you involved. So this is how we created the ambassador program, which we think of as kind of like a virtual internship where students really from around the globe get involved and work in the company in different capacities, depending on, you know, what their career interests are. But for a lot of them, it's content creation. So they're making blogs. They're making vlogs, uh, which are like video series about their lived experiences and just sharing with other people like, hey, this is me. This is real. This is what I'm going through. Here's what I'm struggling with. Here's how I reached out for help. Here's how I identified a trusted adult. Here's how I talked to my parents because I was really scared to talk to my parents about this. Um, and here's the after effects and how it went. So that is that community aspect is something that's really powerful. Uh, and it's something that is unique to me. That's really cool. So in this student ambassador program, um, about how many do you have serving so far? Like what are the age ranges of these of these students? Yeah, currently anybody ages 14 and up can apply. Just go right to our website. We have even a a special landing page for the student ambassadors and they can just apply a quick Google form on the website. Uh, We have a fantastic person who was a student ambassador and we've actually since hired as a full-time employee named Christina who's managing that program and she is just great uh, working with so many young people. So it's really a collaborative program. like we accept people on a rolling basis, but usually at the beginning of each semester. So it would be, you know, this kind of fall semester, then next would be, you know, January, winter, spring semester, and then also over the summer as well. Uh, there are so many different things that the students do. I believe we have student ambassadors from almost 300 different schools. So it's almost like they go and they set up a club in their school where they can talk to teachers, parents, other students about mental health. Uh, We have people who are on what's called an outreach subcommittee. So they like to go and um, really advocate and talk to other people and create presentations. And we help them learn things like public speaking skills that are so important for your career. Uh, We have those students who I talked about who were content creation interns. So a lot of students who are interested in media and marketing and getting to learn how to use social media, again, helpful for their careers, but they can also use their voice to empower other students and to reduce stigma. So it's very meaningful for them. So there have just been all these kind of fantastic ways that the students get involved. It's very student driven. So if they have an idea for for a committee that they want to do, uh, they put that, you know, up, they can actually become a student leader in the program. They can lead that subcommittee. So it's really a a great kind of community opportunity for them to learn about and work on their own mental health, but also a leadership and career development opportunity for them. That is amazing. And I love the, the amplifying of these student voices and that they're centered as well. I think that really speaks to the trust that you're trying to build too. So I think that's something that I've seen that's been missing from um, typical programs and just even from a research lens. You know, um, we talked about participatory um, uh, studies as well. You know, that's just something that's kind of becoming a little more acceptable, but we still have this kind of traditional approach to research and um, not really looking at the communities in which we serve, um, especially those marginalized voices, those voices that are are experiencing the trauma um, and how can we empower them? And here you are giving them a way to do that. You know, it's not just something they can put on their college application. It's, it can be their career. It can be their, um, you know, kind of their life's mission as well too. So you have, I love that you have people who are students who can 
kind of find their way, whether it's marketing or media, and that could be it, or it could be that they're entering into the mental health field because of the work that they've done with you. Um, and I think that is one thing that my kids are a little bit younger. So I'm, I'm thinking in a few years, like my son could apply for this. Um, but I just, as a parent, like, what would you recommend to, for us, especially with younger kids to, um, to really empower them and really figure out for themselves what they need for their social and emotional health? Yeah, thanks, Dr. Campbell. That's a great question. And I actually just wrote uh, um, an article for National Intelligence Magazine uh, about this. It was like advice for parents and what to do at home oh. with kids for SEL. So happy to share that with you after if you want it in the, the program notes. Uh, Absolutely. I guess a couple things. Uh, first, just having some self-compassion for yourself, um, that being a parent is, is the hardest job on earth and that a lot of this stuff around mental health and SEL it's so new. And even Michelle, as you were saying, even as somebody who works in the field, it can be really nuanced and hard to spot in your own kids. So just having that, that grace with yourself. But if anyone out there is thinking about this, I mean, that's, that's fantastic. Like you're taking the first steps around really wanting to support your kids. And that in itself is huge. Just letting them know and modeling by example, that mental health, that social emotional learning, that those are priorities and they're priorities from an early age. I think that's probably the most important thing that any parent can do. Um, also, you know, understanding that these things are complicated and there's a reason that, you know, some of us go to school and study a really long time to, to become a therapist, become a social worker um, and are out there doing the work for you. So as a parent, it can be kind of a relief, like you don't need to do this yourself. I hear a lot from parents, like I'm out there like recording mindfulness practices and like trying to come up with the curriculum. I'm like, oh God, I'm like, don't, we've done it for you. It's easy. I promise. Um, so trying to find really um, a program, I would suggest digital. I think digital is fantastic for a lot of ways. I think our kids are digital natives. Mm -hmm. um, there's embedded progress tracking so they can track their progress. There's alerts that can be sent to parents for different programs or to doctors for different programs. So kind of picking up on some concerning behaviors that you might not see as a parent, but some digital behaviors. Um, so I would suggest looking into digital programs. Again, the curriculum can be ready-made, um, stuff like meals. We personalize it for the student. We track their progress over time. So that can be a really, I think, helpful thing for parents is, is they're finding that something else uh, rather than putting all the work on themselves because they're already so busy. Right. And then also just keeping in mind when they get to that, that young age, I think it's about building those core SEL skills. Um, so things like awareness of their emotions, how to manage their emotions, um, awareness of social behaviors, healthy relationships, all of that's really key. And then as you're getting older, I like to think of this as SEL plus is what we do on meals. Those five core competencies are very important as defined by SEL, but that's not everything. There's a lot around mental health, like Michelle, what you were talking about before that are learned skills, but that can be life-saving. So how to identify signs and symptoms in yourself, in somebody else, how to reach out when you're struggling, how to identify a trusted adult and talk to them. This help-seeking behavior is not something that people, it's not something that our children know. They need to learn it. It's a skill. And it's oftentimes not covered under SEO. Mm. So having something that's an SEO plus that brings in these great core competencies, but also some of these basic mental health skills is a game changer. It can be life-saving. And doing that at an early age, um, I really don't think there's any age that's too early to start. Just find a program that's developmentally appropriate for your child. Uh, that can be life-saving because we're getting them in a preventative way before the point of crisis. So that way, if something starts to happen and they start to struggle, which let's be honest, I think most of us at some point in our life are going to experience right. that 
So it's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. Um, they'll have some of the tools and the resources there to be able to, to let you know that they're struggling and you'll be able to catch it early on as opposed to waiting until there is a crisis. Thank wow. you. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love that it <clears throat> there's an option for um, parents to receive like a heads up because I know with my kids, I have 14, 16, and 17. And so, you know, when my our oldest first started this challenge, my first reaction, my knee-jerk reaction was, I need to see everything on your phone. I need to know what is going on. I didn't realize at that point how, but that's like a, a personal diary. And I didn't view like how, you know, invasive and, and, and how hurtful and terrible it would feel because to me, I'm a safe person for my, for our kids. But from his point of view, it was a huge invasion of privacy. And he's like, I don't want you seeing like the conversations I have with my girlfriend or my text group buddies where we're completely inappropriate, you know, typical teenage (laughs) boy things. And so the next step was we were recommended to get um, a pretty well-known app that pretty much monitors every his every move digitally and location. And it just felt really sneaky and underhanded. Um, and we really had a lot of trust to gain back with him. And so the fact that they can go and he can access what he needs, but then if the app comes across something that parents need to know about, then we can have a conversation with our child about that. And it's not this whole, like, I need to know every single thing Mm -hmm. in your phone, you know? So I love that option because then he feels more willing and safe to open up and truly use the app and not just as a throwaway to keep us happy. Yeah, this is one of the, maybe the hardest things Uh, I can't even imagine as a parent, but definitely that feeling of like, I want to know everything that's going on. And it's probably one of the most overwhelming, um, when you do design sessions, you know, you get ideas all over the place, but overwhelmingly all the kids are kind of in the same camp when they say, I don't want my parents to know what's going on. Um, And that I can only imagine is very difficult for a parent, but my advice would be step back and give them some space. I think the really important bit is picking the right program. But if you pick a program, for example, like Neos, what we found within three weeks is we can reduce stigma and we have all this great content on there that encourages them to reach out for help. For example, other students talking about how they had conversations with their parents. We teach them to have those conversations. And then just a few weeks later, your kid is the one coming to you wanting to have those conversations. So it's like a total, you know, 180. Um, but, But that's really hard. And I've heard that from um, you know, other parents, teens, other school districts, like some of these monitoring programs can be really invasive um, and strangely use, um, a lot of them use keywords, like an NLP system, for example, and sometimes use keywords that are targeting students in the LGBTQ plus community yes. and, you know, outing them. And there have been some strange wow. things going on around that, um, problematic things, you know, to be honest. So that the importance of understanding these programs and how they work and, you know, who was involved in creating them is, is really key. And it is hard trying to build up that trust mm-hmm. with, with your, your kid and wanting to make sure you get those alerts. But there are absolutely, I think, programs out there that can kind of help speed up the trust between you and your child 
uh, and that community aspect, hearing that from other students, kind of getting that push to have conversations with your parents, we found that that can be really effective. I think it's great for educators as well, because I know, you know, we have I, we've several programs for quote unquote SEL. Um, and one of the biggest challenges for even kids as young as like in fourth grade is your teacher can see everything that you do within that app. And so if I'm really struggling and I'm not sure how to talk to anybody about it, or I'm afraid that my parents are going to be mad at me for some of the things that I'm feeling, then I'm not going to put anything in that app because I don't want it to flag my teacher who's then going, you know, that's going to start this whole thing. And I'm young, my brain's not developed. I don't understand the importance or the urgency of this. And it's so I think it's great too that the educators can just be like, okay, the app's got it. Like I don't have to, you yeah. know, completely like have my thumb over this the whole time. Yeah, definitely when you're building up these programs, you don't want to be adding to educators' plates or therapists. <laughs> We're all so busy and so burned out, to be honest, following COVID. Yes. Um, but that trust component is huge. I think oftentimes there's decisions that are made out of fear, like we, these monitoring decisions, like we have to know everything. Yes. But what you need to do is really take a step back and be thoughtful about paths, entry points to mental health care, real barriers and things like stigma and privacy. Um, mm -hmm. And will you potentially traumatize children mm -hmm. if you're going about this in the wrong way? You know, for example, I've had a lot of schools say, hey, you know, something going on, we want the police to come and show up at the child's door. That's going to be a problem for a whole lot of reasons that we can get into. Yeah. Um, you know, like, okay, let's take a step back here. Because if, if we're training our children that we're going to be monitoring them in the second that they say they have feelings that some big thing is going to happen, yeah. they're going to exactly like you said, Michelle, stop sharing in the future. So it's, it's hard. It's hard for parents. It's hard for schools. But I would really encourage them to, um, for example, set up a student advisory board, have some conversations with them, and learn the students want to reach out for help, but I think they need to do things to some extent on their own terms. So we need to be able to step back and create some space for them. And then we need to know when to step in. And it is a very delicate balancing act, but when it's done properly, it's going to be done in the right way versus, you know, scaring kids and then not having them share on purpose. That defeats the whole point of these programs. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I, I love this trust that that word just keeps sticking out to me, I think. Um, and then to just the acknowledgement that they're digital natives, you know, I think that so much is put that's like, it's bad. And, and like you said, too, I have a lot of friends that have those tracking apps on their kids' phones. And I just, I, I just always felt uncomfortable with that because I, that is my whole goal is to have my kids trust me, have them come to me. Um, and even when I was a teacher, you know, I, I built those relationships with students. I didn't know I was doing SEL 17 years ago when I entered the classroom, but I realized now that's what I was doing. And I made um, learning how to make responsible decisions, developing a growth mindset. Those were the key things to helping my students learn the content. Um, and so if I didn't have a good relationship with them and, and foster that, then there was no trust. They didn't want to work. They didn't want to work for me. You know, I mean, I hate to say it like that, but students will do the work for teachers they like and who they feel supported by and you know at that time they're not they don't have that intrinsic motivation so to speak because they can't see that far into the future that this is going to affect me in the, in the future and so I think too just kind of thinking about those teachers who are who are out there and supporting 
um, students who maybe are coming to school with some of that trauma or um, just some of the typical problems that students have that they're bringing. How do we um, manage that compassion fatigue and that vicarious or secondary trauma? Yeah, this is important. And as someone who used to work as a therapist and then also um, in the school with the students, I can definitely relate. Uh, I'll say a couple things. I'll say I maybe some high level stuff that feels like it's coming from a therapist and then I'll get real about it. But, you know, I think first off, if you're really experiencing this, this fatigue and this burnout, especially following COVID, I would say take a step back and try to assess like if you're safe, because I've had a lot of conversations with teachers where it feels like this is not just, you know, starting to feel stressed, but you're actually at a critical level for your mental health. So seeing if you feel safe, um, seeing if you can talk to maybe superiors about taking a leave of absence or what resources they have for you. Um, and, you know, feeling like, can, can you step away? I think that's another thing I hear, to be honest with teachers. And this is maybe where we're starting to get more real is like, you know, I'm struggling. I'm in all this burnout, but I feel like financially I'm responsible for my family and I can't step away from my job right now, you know, and that, and that's a real concern as well. So in those situations, what I've seen work very well is they feel like I still have to, you know, get up and I still have to do this job, um, peer support. I think peer support has always been fantastic. What we've been talking about on Neo with the kids, you know, communicating with each other and teachers um, coming together and sharing, because again, often we feel really isolated in what's going on. And then if we're able to find some people to talk to, we can often see that, hey, they're going through a lot of the same things. And you might be able to hear some strategies back and forth as to what's been working for you. Um, another thing that we've started to see, which is a, a maybe a you know more realistic goal again, if you can't feel like you can can't step away, can't take a leave of absence, is bringing this type of support into the classroom, because you are maybe taking some time during the day to do some of these exercises with your students, mm -hmm. but those are also times where then you can just step back and do the exercises along with them and start to vicariously pick up on some of these benefits. So you're never too old to learn things around social emotional learning, to start engaging in stress management, to be working on your mental health. Um, so I would say, you know, teachers might want to start taking advantage of some of the tools. Uh, I know, for example, at NEOC, we've been working with Iowa and the Department of Education. They actually have been doing research studies, not only with the children, but also with the teachers using our app for their own personal well-being. So there are, you know, possibilities there, even if it's just like two minutes. We hear that a lot from teachers. I don't have time. It's like two minutes. You have time. Find it. It doesn't need to be an hour. I think that's when programs can be overwhelming. It's like an hour every day. I used to do this, like we used to do MBSR in the, the hospital. People aren't familiar. Mindfulness-based stress reduction. And it was like very long, um, fantastic results, but not everybody has time for that. So just set your goals realistically. Maybe it's two times a week uh, for two minutes and that's perfect. And that's a start. And you're just prioritizing your self-care. And that's like a fantastic way where you can start to build things up over time. So that would be my advice for those teachers. Yeah. Love I love that you explicitly said, take this time and do it with your students because it's that important. And I feel like just in education, Ashley and I talk about this a lot. We don't get a lot of, we give a lot of explicit instruction to our kids, but as far as permission to have boundaries and, um, you know, take care of our, our mental health and our students' mental health, those things aren't often explicitly stated. And I love that you explicitly said that from a therapist, from a doctor point of view, not just Michelle Gonzalez girth, but you know, it's like, because I think that's so important that educators learn how to give themselves permission to do those things in their classroom. Yeah. 
and not yeah. because it increases, you know, academic scores, but because it's the right thing to do for us and the other humans in the room. Yeah, I think that's so important too, because a lot of it is based around student performance and we should take care of our mental health because of student performance. And you're right, it's 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 the right thing to do for us as well. And I think also too, I'm, I'm probably guilty of this is I really preached a lot of self-care um, and really there's really so much value in community care. And I think you touched on that, Catherine, so eloquently that you know we, we're responsible for each other. We can do these things with our students we should, we should build building a network with our, our coworkers and, and other teachers, um, other people in the similar positions that we in which we work um, and and finding that there. Because sometimes I think I can give, you know, all the self-care strategies and I can say, you can tailor this to you, but sometimes it really is that community and seeing other people doing it, seeing other people live it, hearing that other people are going through it that, that helps you find out what works best for you. Love that. Yeah, it's anything else that you want to share with us about Neil that we didn't get to discuss today. Um, oh gosh, where do I start? <laughs> um, maybe just following up on what we were just talking about. One of the things that I find really cool in Neil is we actually have a calendar feature. So we ask people, it's not one of those programs where we say you have to do this every day. That feels really overwhelming. We ask people, how many days a week might you want to do this? Which days are you, you feeling into this? Um, and what's interesting is the kids do it a lot during the week and the teachers actually will do it on the weekend. Um, oh. And that's fine. That's fine whenever they want to do it. You know, they can pick the calendar. We'll populate activities for them. We'll send them reminders. I think the same way that we're incorporating, you know, our, our homework and our class schedule onto our calendar, put that self-care on your calendar. It will serve as a reminder for you just blocking off that time. Um, but also knowing that, and I think sometimes as teachers, we have our days so scheduled. Um, it's okay to take a step back from that schedule as well. Uh, sometimes self-care just looks like I'm not doing anything right now, or it looks like, you know what, I need to take a step back. And I know my, you know, practice wasn't scheduled until the weekend, but I'm, I'm having a tough day. Like I need to do this now, even if it's that two minutes. So just being in touch with yourself and, and really, um, having some of that grace and compassion for yourself and saying, this is when I need it. This is when I'm going to do it. Um, yeah, about meals, but people might sometimes don't always know. Uh, I think they're familiar with the app on the app store. That's the one right now for students ages 11 plus that we've been talking about. We also actually have a free version for teachers, which takes all of our great content, um, our SEL and relaxation practices, those videos we were talking about from the students, those videos we were talking about from the doctors that were educational, um, and basically has libraries of content that teachers can pull up in the classroom, do with their students. Um, we also have lesson plans that our educators have made or teachers can make their own lesson plans and they can assign them to students. Um, so there's a free version. It's the Neos for Educators where teachers can access all of this. And for our social workers and school counselors as well, we have um, a version for them, which is really an analytics portal. So they can be seeing kind of on this aggregate, de-identified level, what's going on with the students, what's their stress level, um, any kind of symptoms that they're having, whether it's you know emotional, behavioral, physical, how things are changing over time. They can also link up too with individual students. So if I'm a school counselor and I'm working with you know five at-risk students and I wanna know kind of what's going on with them, um, I can talk to those kids, I can talk to their parents and I can actually link up with them and get alerts about what's happening in between appointments. So we do have those versions for counselors and teachers as well as the version for your own personal well-being. Uh, 
it's yeah, it's been a lot of fun to be able to work with the school system and really build up something that's comprehensive and that meets the needs of the various stakeholders at the schools. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. It's amazing for sure. I love it. And I've implemented or implemented several of the strategies that I found in the in my um, educator account. I signed up for the free one. Um, and it's just nice to, like you said, not it's not something else on my plate. I can just use it when I feel like I or one of my students needs it and I don't have to like think about it. I don't have to like dive in too deep. It's just a, a quick resource. It's not, you know, a big production and it doesn't take up a lot of time and then it's not overwhelming for the kids either. So yeah, it's really cool. I've really enjoyed kind of tootling around on it and, and digging in and, um, you know, I know my our oldest uses it, and I like that the calendar reminders remind him because my biggest fear is he's going to start kind of getting back into all of those feelings again um, and not be able to be reflection, reflective enough to recognize that he needs to take action. And so just having those reminders for him to take care of himself I think is a huge, huge deal. And what a way to teach kids that this is lifelong. Yeah. You know? Very empowering. Very empowering. Yeah. Very, very empowering. Yeah. Well, I know we've talked a lot about meals. We've talked a little bit about neurodiversity. We've talked about precision, uh, neurodiversity and every, all the things. Um, but we haven't really talked about you much, Catherine, and we do have a few questions we'd like to get just to know a little bit more about you. So um, we have three questions. The first one is, if you could have dinner with anyone in the world, alive or deceased, who would it be and why? This is always a fun question. I feel like the first time I got this question, I was, was probably in school, um, <laughs> in elementary school, a very long time ago. And my answer might have been different, but now I would say um, it would be someone deceased, my grandfather. Um, he's somebody that I grew up with. He was my father figure in my life. And probably where I've gotten my drive for social impact, I really believe that um, we're, we're put on this earth to, to make the world a better place. And I got that from him. So he was actually a fighter. I grew up in New York. If anybody's savvy, they can pick up on the accent. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he was a firefighter. And back in the day, I think before they even had masks at some point. Um, and I remember growing up and there were all these medals and all these plaques and all these different awards and didn't really talk about it much, but I remember them all around the house. And oh, this is interesting. Um, and, you know, as he, he got older, um, he developed Parkinson's disease. He passed away recently. Um, but I, I started to learn more about him and what he did and um, even came across this news article once where there was a, a fire in an apartment building, as you can imagine, in, um, in the Bronx, very scary. And right. there were a bunch of people, family and children trapped in a room and uh, they couldn't get out because of the fire escape, there was fire coming out the window. So he actually, one of the big awards that I always wondered about as a child was um, from him, he used his body as a human shield and he blocked the fire, he got pretty burnt but blocked it with his body. And I think he saved 11 people that day. Uh, and that was just one day over like a 40 year career. So I can't even imagine the amount of people that he saved. Uh, and to now, you know, be uh, working in mental health and, you know, working on suicide prevention and, and uh, maybe not saving as many lives as he did, but certainly saving some uh, feels like a bit of a, 
a testament to him. So would certainly love to have dinner with him again if I could. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love uh, that. It's, it's like amazing. you're carrying on the ripple effect that he started with having a positive impact on people's lives and you're just kind of carrying that on. So what a what a great tribute. Just sounds like I think I'd like to have dinner with him too. I know, me too. And those stories, I can't funny. even imagine. He was very, very very funny person. Um, I think anybody <laughs> would love to have dinner. He just had everybody laughing. It was hysterical. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so the second question is I think we can tell a lot about people with their travel habits. So what is your dream vacation and why did you choose that locale? Oh gosh. So, all right. So what people probably should know about me is that um, I grew up without a lot of money. Uh, We weren't able to go on vacations and travel and, um, you know, at some point, when you're younger, you don't realize, and then at some point, you start to get older, and you realize, oh, okay, this right. is this is a money thing. Um, so I remember seeing a lot of, of friends come back from vacation and always going tropical places, and um, that was something I never did, and always wanted to do. Um, I've had the the privilege of um, you know now becoming a, a doctor and doing you know being in a different place financially and being able to go on trips. I actually married somebody from Europe. So we've been all around Europe, which has been uh, been awesome to learn about his culture. But for me, I still have not been anywhere tropical. So I would love to go to Hawaii now that I'm in California. It's a bit closer. Um, I love nature. I love, you know, hiking, getting outdoors, the ocean, surfing. So for me, that feels like uh, a dream vacation, definitely. Yeah. Awesome. I say you deserve it. I do too. And I don't know yeah. if it's privileged to be a doctor. I feel like doctors earn that. It, it's an earned privilege, I feel like. Sure. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> it's a lot of work. And where's your husband from in Europe? He's from Vienna, Austria. Oh, awesome. Wow. Very cool. Yeah, and he's actually my co-founder. So uh, whoever knew, I'd moved back to California, leave my job at a hospital, start a tech company with my husband. But, you know, two years into the pandemic, we've been both working from home, working together 24-7. And uh, not divorced yet, so that's yeah. sorry. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Amen to that. Yeah. Okay, so our last question for you, is there a piece of literature, book, or music, or art that has had a profound impact on your life? I have a hard time picking favorites. You know, I was a kid, I used to tell people my favorite color was rainbow and sparkle, uh, which is probably still true. I just love sparkles. But I just couldn't, I was like, I can't pick. I didn't love them all. Uh, But I will talk about, I guess, some books that I've been reading recently. Um, So for anybody who's listening, I'm a female founder, identify as a female. And sometimes life is hard for women. I'm sure people listening can understand that. I just got back from a fantastic conference where I was able to connect with a lot of other women who are running their own businesses. And this goes back to that community. They were just sharing their stories. Like these are some of the famous, really sexist things that have been happening to me on a day to day. And it's like, you go about your job um, and you have all the responsibilities with that. And then you have this added responsibility as a woman and all of the just difficulty that comes along with that. So I've been really interested in books lately that have been written by other women uh, and starting to kind of shed light on some of the things that are happening in the job environment, in the corporate world that 
I think each of us have experienced and felt like mm, that was kind of uncomfortable or icky is the word that I hear a lot from women. Like that didn't feel right, but I'm not sure why. And starting to actually read books and learn about it from other women's experiences, because then you're like, ah, this light bulb goes off and that's what that was. And here's what I should do in the future. Um, one book my sister gave me, I think it's called Feminist Fight Club. It has a really interesting name, uh, but it, it really goes through lots of different scenarios of, of different things that have happened for women and, um, you know, what they did or, or just to be aware of stuff like that. Uh, right now I'm reading a book by Jean Case from the Case Foundation. It's called, um, I think it's called Be Fearless or something fearlessness. Um, I should know. I don't know the name, but it's a big red book. Uh, I feel like and we could Google. For me, <laughs> yes, people can Google. I'm yes. sure they'll find it because she's pretty well known. But that's uh, really about making an impact in the world. Uh, and again, you know, from the perspective of a woman, which I think is important because there are additional barriers that, that you might face. But, you know, how can you go about the world and, and, and really try to change things for the better? Um, so those are some of the things that I've been interested in, kind of that intersection of, of being a woman in business and um, social impact business and what are the next steps for me? Yeah. Love that. I'm definitely going to look up Feminist Fight Club. 100%. Oh, yeah. I'll send you the link. Um, yeah. There's some, yeah. some really funny quotes um, from, from women. One, cut this out if it's not perfect, but one was really funny. It was actually from... Um, a NASA astronaut, yeah, and they, she's one of the first women, you know, to go up into space, and apparently there was this, like, whole round table of men who got together, did not invite her, so this goes back to, you know, inviting people into the conversation, did not invite her mm -hmm. to join, but they had a whole conversation about, you know, she's going up into space now, she's a woman, and, um, gosh, we might need to include some tampons in the box, and we don't know how many to include, and there was, like, this whole, like, scientific conversation, and then, like, maybe for the week, a thousand, like, is a thousand the right amount of tampons for this woman, and she was like, like, no, gentlemen, that's not correct. And it was just so funny because, like, that stuff happens all the time and it doesn't need to. Yeah. Yeah. We're just, it's like we're an afterthought. Like, it's, and like you said, I love the centering of our voices as well. And just hearing our experiences not being, I hate the term, but mansplained, because I feel like that happens a lot in in spaces that try to be inclusive. Um, you just get overshadowed by um people who don't experience it and their voices so i love yeah. that you and said that. Definitely look that book up. i like too like the concept of oh this happened and now i know how to manage that so i listened to a true crime podcast with my kids that most people would probably find very inappropriate um i grew up in the oil field so i can talk like a roughneck when i'm not around children that aren't my own or that yes I do not talk like a roughneck around children that aren't my own my own kids are very <laughs> used to it um but we listen to this crime or this true crime podcast it's called my favorite murder I love it I wish I was best friends with them in real life but one thing that I notice, and I feel like I picked up on that a bit about your when you were talking about women in business and the sexism and all of that that they faced is they will have they will say scenarios and I'm like oh my gosh that happened to me and I didn't even realize like um a policeman will never have you get in the front seat of his car well I've been pulled over on a dark road and invited into the front seat of a policeman's car mm. and at the time I thought wow he's being really nice and then you know 25 years later I'm looking at it with a different lens, different lens. I'm like, yeah. holy smokes. Like, and so I love that 
that you brought up that book because I want to go because there may be things that I can teach my daughter about and how to handle better than I did. Yeah. This all ties into mental health. Um, yes. You know, I think a lot of times that's why, you know, SEL is great, but it doesn't cover everything. And that SEL plus is important because let's be real, you know, sexism, racism, the intersection of these different identities, gender identity, sexual identity, these things are happening. Uh, people are experiencing discrimination on a daily basis. And that very much so impacts mental health. So, you know, for me, learning about it and bettering my own um, experiences and learning what to do is important because then I can set an example for all of these young children who you work with us at the company or use the program or we even talk about this sometimes on um, Neos and some of the different video series. It's definitely been uh, the kids can vote, you know, anonymously what they want to learn about. And this is something that they they really want to learn about. Sometimes it's about SEL competencies, but a lot of times it's about this really tricky stuff. And, um, you know, I think that as adults, it, it is our responsibility to start to to educate them because I would never want, you know, some of the things that have happened to me or as you talked about have happened to other women. Uh, I don't want that to continue to happen to, to these young girls. So, yeah. Yeah. That, that's, I love that. Yeah. I love that too. And Michelle and I were just, I think talked earlier this week, we both watched this movie on Netflix called the luckiest girl alive. I don't know if you, yes. it's a novel as well. And so, trigger so warning, there are some very graphic, um, uh, rape scenes in it, but, just even to like her whole mission of being the proper victim and like understanding that she was a victim no matter how um, it, things happened and how much of a voice she was too for other women. Like she didn't even realize like, oh my gosh, this is a common experience. And so um, sometimes there is kind of that, like you said, that trust and that safety in numbers too. And so I know that's not really, it's totally related to that, but I just think like when you said that about the books that you're reading, I was like, oh my goodness, I just watched this movie, which I don't always watch Netflix because I don't always like, I feel like a lot of movies on there are cheesy or corny, but this was a really well done um, movie. And so uh, it just reminded me of that, that, that there's yeah. so much power in, in community and in numbers and, um, and finding people who have those common experiences or, or common identity markers. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has been, like I said, I am thrilled that you came on and that, I mean, you are one of Forbes's 30 under 30 and that you found time for our little podcast. So thank you very much for doing that. And um, I have a lot of notes that I'm going to be digging into um, from your, uh, from our conversation. And I just really appreciate all the work that you do for kids and youth and parents and, you know, opening up pathways to support for mental health. I think it's just really amazing. And, and I can't wait to see, like, if you've already done it this much, like, what is the next 30 going to look like for you? Like, I can't wait to see that happen. And, and <laughs> all of the ripple effects that you send out into the world, I think that's really, really exciting. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, so much fun to be here today. Thanks for, for getting real with me and jumping into some important topics throughout the whole thing, especially at the end there. But it was a lot of fun. And um, you know, for any, I guess, listeners out there who want to learn more, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Catherine Grill, or uh, Neos is N-E-O-L-T-H.com on our website. Any of those students who want to join the ambassador program, uh, we're 
be more than happy to have you and, and join our community of young people working on their mental health. So uh, Dr. Campbell and Michelle, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Yes. And I echo everything that Michelle said. And my just turned 11 year old, I'm downloading the app on his phone as soon as he gets home. So thank you for, for all of that. Um, and thank you to our listeners. You have been here with us at, at the Late Registration Podcast. I'm Ashley. And I'm Michelle. And we're signing off. This has been a Two Profesh production. Have a ridiculous, funny, or horrifying story to share? We want to hear it. Email us your side of the story at thelaterpodcast at gmail.com. That's L-A-T-E-R podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Until next time, stay safe and stay profesh.